Well, good morning again. Great to be with you. I invite you to keep your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 2, where, of course, we're going to be this morning in a sermon titled Sola Gratia, The Creating Love of God. This is the third week in this new sermon series on the Protestant Reformation that we've entitled, as you can see from the slides over my shoulders, Five Obsessions of Extraordinary Faith. We've entitled it that, rather than something like Lessons from the Reformation or Luther is my homeboy, something like that. But five obsessions of extraordinary faith because we're not really, at least here, interested in history for history's sake, right? We're interested in retrieving the great truths of the Reformation, crystallized and articulated at the time of the Reformation, taking a deep plunge into the meaning of the gospel. That's why we're celebrating with Protestants really all around the world the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, a deep dive into, deep plunge into the gospel that we might be as individuals, as a church, just a little more obsessed with God. And so we've been taking, the approach we've been taking is looking at these five obsessions, extraordinary faith, or what are called in in Reformation talk the five solas of the Reformation. Not a drink at Starbucks, these five solas, right? These are little Latin expressions for the heart, what captures the heartbeat of the Reformation. If you are here last week, we looked at the first of those, sola scriptura, scripture alone. It's really central conviction of the Reformation, what's called the formal principle of the Reformation, what gave form and shape to the whole of the Reformation a commitment to the Bible as the final source of authority, Scripture as the sun at the center of our solar system. That was last week, Sola Scriptura. This week, the second of the solas, and I'm tempted to say it's as important, if not maybe more important than last week, crucial for Christians, crucial for living a life obsessed with God. And I am talking about sola gratia, grace alone. The Protestant Reformation, you might say, is a recovery of the grace of God. It's what it is at its heart. Grace alone. Now, it's interesting. I find it interesting. You might find it interesting. You might find it surprising, in fact, that At the time of the Reformation, the Catholic tradition, the Catholic Church, like, they were all about the grace of God. Had no objection with the grace of God. No problem with the grace of God. Their teaching was clear that the grace of God was essential to salvation, full stop. Not wishy-washy at all. The grace of God was absolutely essential. And so you might be wondering, after saying that, what were the Reformers reforming? Here's what they were reforming. Not the fact of the grace of God, but the definition of the grace of God. Not that the grace of God is essential to salvation, but an understanding of the grace of God and how it works in salvation. You see, for the Catholic Church at the time, in the 16th century, grace was understood, you might say, you might put it this way, Grace was understood as a reward for good behavior, to put it kind of bluntly and almost crassly, a reward for good behavior. 
It was a way of talking about God's grace in the life of the believer as a response to the individual's initiative. In fact, at the time of the Reformation, they had a slogan that was used in the Catholic Church. It was well understood. It was widespread. It was touted by the theologians of the day. It was a theological cliche, and it went like this. Catch this. Quote, to those who do what is in them, God will not deny his grace. Sounds a little bit like the famous theologian on, in America, Benjamin Franklin, who said, God helps those who help themselves help themselves. Grace as reward for good behavior. I wonder if some of us in the room this morning have that same sort of view of the grace of God. You see, for the Catholic Church at the time, it was the individual who got the whole process of salvation going who you might say took the first step and initiated the process of salvation. At the end of the day, for the Catholic Church at the time, it all depended on the believer's consistent repentance and faith. Grace was there, yes, grace was essential, but grace was only there for those who did what was in them. So God, you might say, was always on the response. He was always responding to the initiative of the individual. But what made matters worse and and a toxic brew that made Luther so indignant at the time and the other reformers was this, this understanding of grace combined with a certain view of salvation. And the view of salvation, the church at the time was this, that salvation, check it out, was a lifelong process, a long, winding process that involved cycle after cycle after discouraging and defeating cycle of what? Sin, followed by sacramental confession, followed by acts of penance, followed by priestly absolution. And just when you got yourself all cleaned up, you you happen upon some sin again. And then the process starts all over again. A lifelong winding, and you can imagine, very discouraging process. I like to think of the Catholic view of salvation as what we often see in the United States around New Year's time with New Year's resolutions to say, exercise more and lose weight, right? Great idea, get you going. You get off to a good start, right? Seems like a good idea, you get off to a good start. But you know how this almost always goes, right? Real life sets in, you get distracted, you get busy with other things, you stop going to the gym as frequently as you thought you would, you start falling behind on your program, you feel bad, so you redouble your efforts, you get back to the gym, change your your membership and maybe even hire a personal trainer, but then that kind of runs its course and you get disappointed with yourself all over again because you don't have the self-discipline it takes. And and so the ice cream at 1030 at night even looks more consoling. But this only adds to the guilt that you already feel, the sense of worthlessness, not motivated to go to the gym anymore. You're motivated to stay home in your sweatpants, watch Netflix, and re- secretly resent the gym, right? Exhausting, demoralizing. This was Luther's experience. Could never get ahead. He could never get out of this cycle. 
of doing what is found in him to get more of the grace of God to keep this thing going. I mean, talk about treadmill. And grace in this analogy I've just given you of New Year's resolutions in the gym, grace in this analogy is like the boost you get after you've exercised. It's the endorphins in your, in your brain after you've exercised. It's the reward for good behavior. But what happens if you don't have any desire to exercise? What happens if you got no initiative? Or what happens if you did at one point, but you feel so self-defeated, it's a hopeless cause, and, and now you have retired and reclined yourself to sort of like where you are, it's never going to get better. What happens? Where is the grace of God in that situation if you have no desire to do what is in you? I want you to hold on to that thought, that question for a second. We're going to come back to it in just a minute, but let me make another observation. And here I want to move from the 16th century to the 21st century. I want to move from the 1500s to today. And I want to say this. Ironically, ironically, in the United States, right, standing in the stream, historically speaking, of the Protestant Reformation, ironically, much of the spirituality in our world today, even among self-professed Protestant Christians, is a lot like the Catholic view of grace and salvation from the late Middle Ages. It is a spirituality as we see it expressed in art and pop culture or talk about it with friends or colleagues. It is a spirituality that is, listen, decidedly graceless, decidedly graceless without real grace. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain it this way. We've been talking, I've mentioned the name of the sociologist Christian Smith over the last couple of Sundays in me the messages. And his delicious phrase that he coined to describe the spirituality of young adults in the United States, and, and I think we could say of most adults in the United States, and that expression you may recall is, he call, called it this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And he says, and I think he's exactly right, this is the spirituality of the vast majority of Americans, even of self-professing Christians moralistic therapeutic deism, where the operative lead word, you see, is moralistic. And so decidedly graceless. Smith writes this, quote, moralistic therapeutic deism teaches that central to live a good and happy life, here you can think of like late medieval Catholicism, central to live a good and happy life is being a good moral person. It means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible at work, at, uh, responsible at work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. Moralistic. Moralistic. Smith interviews lots of young adults, and one of the 
young adults he interviews, a 17-year-old boy, describes his approach to religion this way. Listen to this. This will sound familiar, I suspect. This is a 17-year-old boy talking about how he approaches religion, and this is what he says. Quote, I believe in, well, well my whole religion is where you try to be good, and uh, if you're not good, then you should just try to get better. That's all. Sound familiar? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. We live in a world of graceless spirituality. And if that wasn't problem enough, if that wasn't problem enough, what we also find is that we live in a world of, a church world of, I'll call it this, gospel-less grace. So then in the culture around us, we have graceless spirituality that seeps into the life of the church, but we still need to hang on to the idea of grace, but we drain it of its biblical substance, and what we have is gospel-less grace, grace in word only, not in reality. What is gospel-less grace? This is grace that indulges the sin and flatters the sinner. This is grace with lots of assurances, but no real transforming power. This is grace as the benign neglect of a distracted babysitter rather than the tough love of a mom and a dad. You may know Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a word for this sort of grace. You know what he called it, a phrase for this sort of grace. He called it cheap grace. And this is what he said about cheap grace. Quote, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today, Bonhoeffer says, is for costly grace. He goes on to explain cheap grace and what it means. Cheap grace means grace is... Bargain basement goods, cut-rate forgiveness, cut-rate comfort, cut-rate sacrament. Grace is the church's inexhaustible pantry from which it's doled out by careless hands without hesitation or limit. It's grace without a price, he says, without cost. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of the community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace, he says, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living, incarnate Jesus Christ. And he goes on to add, like ravens we have gathered around the carcass of cheap grace. Now, needless to say, the Reformers, and Luther in particular, had a very different view of things, understood grace very differently. For Luther, grace isn't a reward for good behavior. Rather, listen to me, grace, according to Luther, please hear this phrase, is the creating love of God. The creating love 
of God, the title for this morning's message, The Creating Love of God. That's how Luther understood grace. That's what drove the Reformation. The year was 1518. It was just a year after he had posted famously his 95 theses in Castle Door in Wittenberg, and the Reformation had been birthed, and controversy was stoking up, and, and they called, the Catholic leadership called Luther to have a, another disputation, another debate, another dialogue, right, about this Reformation outlook that Luther was developing and articulating that was spreading like wildfire all over Germany and beyond. So they invited him to the city of Heidelberg. And there they had what is known in church history as the Heidelberg Disputation, and Luther goes to that with his own. In those days, when you had a public debate or discussion, you would develop little theses that you would debate back and forth. And so Luther did his 95 theses on the castle door in Wittenberg in 1517, and now in 1518, he develops some more theses. The guy's always writing theses. Check it out. But this time, not 95, just 24. And it lays out, in many ways, like the heart of Luther's theology and Reformation theology, but it is in the last thesis of these 24, right at the very, very end, that all of the theological bugs come out of the rug where he gets to his definition of the love of God. And what I want to suggest to you today is also the grace of God. What does he say? Last thesis, here's what he says. Write this down. This bears so much reflection. Hear this. Quote, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God doesn't find, rather it creates that which is pleasing to it. God doesn't go out looking for stuff that thrills God's heart. You know what God does? God creates in the world. God creates in your life and my life. God creates in the life of the church. God creates through election. God creates through resurrection. God creates through new creation that which is pleasing to him. This is an understanding of grace. Not God on the response. Like, I wonder if there's any grace out there. Come on, try harder. You got something in there, and if you just act on it, I'd give you a little more grace, and we keep this whole thing going. Rather, The amazing love of God in action, creating in your heart, creating in my heart and in my life that which we could not create for ourselves. Grace, listen, this is why it's sola gratia, grace at the base of it all. Not ultimately man's devotion or man's decision or man's initiative, but God's action, his love in action. That is at the base of it all. The grace of God, as Luther articulates it, so powerful. It is the radical break with the teaching and tradition of the Catholic Church, insisting on this kind of grace and this grace 
alone at the bottom of it all. With that, Luther not only breaking with Catholic tradition at the time, but Luther tapping into, check it out, a very rich vein of grace that flows through the entire Bible. So try this out. Try reading your Bible with this definition of grace in mind, that this is the love of God that creates rather than finds what's pleasing to it. And what you will find when you read the Bible that way is, that's exactly right. The love of God in action, the expression of grace in creation, Genesis chapter 1, when nothing existed and boom, something exists. All the way to new creation, Revelation 21 and 22, where it didn't exist, but God brings it into existence because it's pleasing to God. And all the stuff in the middle, redemption, God bringing about, bringing into existence that which did not exist as an expression of God's grace, culminating in resurrection. What could be a more powerful picture of God's love in action, bringing to existence that which did not exist, than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? That, y'all, is Luther's understanding of grace. And that, y'all, I want to suggest, is the Bible's understanding of grace. And maybe nowhere in the Bible do we see this expression of grace or definition, understanding of grace, set forth more powerfully, more potently, than there in Ephesians chapter 2. Take your Bible, will you, and take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. And what do we see there? We see the grace of God as God's creating love, bringing life out of death, bringing spiritual light into darkness, bringing passion for Jesus out of no passion for Jesus. It's a passage of Scripture that safeguards the Reformation teaching of sola gratia. The Reformers didn't bring sola gratia, grace alone, to the Bible. Again, they found it in the Bible. You cannot possibly come away from this passage as it was just read for us a minute ago with the kind of impression, I think Christianity teaches that it's sort of like 50-50 between me and God. Like God does his part and then I sort of do my part. He contributes some and I contribute some as well. You could not possibly come away from this passage with that kind of understanding. Because the way this passage lays out the problem is, as you see there in verses 1, 2, and 3, look, they're incredibly stark. (laughs) Our sin problem, our death problem, our disobedience problem, incredibly sobering, incredibly stark. But you notice towards the end of the passage, verses 4 and following, the solution is dazzling, it's breathtaking, it's incredible, spectacular heights of grace and grandeur from problem to solution in this passage. And because the problem is so bleak, the solution is all the sweeter. And it is all captured, you see there, verse 4, in the pivot of the passage. Look there at the beginning of verse 4, the pivot where everything turns from problem to solution, from death to life, from wrath to salvation. There, the beginning of verse 4 with my judgment, two of the best words in all the Bible. And what are they? But God. 
But God, you've been around Calvary for a while, if you have been. You know why sometimes when we come across a juicy little phrase out of the Bible, I, I, I tease a little bit and I say, you should get this tattooed on your bicep or something. I, 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 I have not teased you about this for a while, but may I just make a suggestion? If it, and I know, I know tattoos aren't everybody's cup of tea, but if this is your cup of tea, if you're looking for a tattoo, maybe the beginning of verse four, these two spectacular words that are the heart of the gospel, they are the heart of grace, and here they are, but God. So that when the, the challenges are stacked a mile high, but God. So that when your heart is super wayward, but God. So that when you cannot seem to get a little victory over that sin that has a hold on you, but God. Kids, you may be sitting over lunch this afternoon with your parents and you heard me use that fancy little Latin phrase, sola gratia. You ask mom or dad what sola gratia is all about. Mom and dad, this is the two-word answer. But God. Take a look at this passage And notice with me a couple of things, how we see, again, we see the grace of God. Yes, we see, what I want you to understand is we see the creating love of God. The grace of God is the creating love of God. Where stuff wasn't in existence, God creates. That's an expression of his love, and when we see that, we call it grace. Notice, verses 1 and 2, that God creates resurrection life where there's only spiritual death. Check it out, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Like, not sick, not injured, not handicapped, not hobbling along, not sleepy or struggling, but dead. Like, not in a wheelchair, not in a hospital bed, but in a casket six feet underground. Like, dead. Like, that is our spiritual condition outside of Christ. Like, no spiritual pulse, nothing going on, no responsiveness to the things of God. And yet, but God. Take a look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love. There it is. His grace is his great creating love with which he loved us. Here it is. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, has done something amazing. What has he done? Made us alive together with Christ. And then notice how the verse finishes out. This is one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. Oh, by the way, by grace you've been saved. Like dead life. That's grace. That's grace. God creates resurrection life where there's only spiritual death. But notice as well, God creates, check it out, desire for God when there's only like wayward passions for other things. This is spectacular as well. Living life, loving the things of the world, all of a sudden you encounter the grace of God and you're like, I think I like Jesus. Like even more than some of that other stuff. How did that happen? Where did that come from? But God. The grace of God. 
Notice verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What is the verse saying? It's saying we're enslaved to ourselves outside of Christ. You might feel free, but it's not real freedom. You are bound, as Luther would put it, your will is bound. But here's the good news of the gospel, verse 4 and 5. God not only makes us alive, but check out verse 6. Not just alive, but resurrection life. New resurrection life. New desires. New passion for God and for Christ. But more than that, check it out. God, check it out, verses 7 and 8, this is incredible. God creates Christ-centered faith when there's only fixation on the world. You see how the earlier verses, verses 2 and 3, are talking about following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, way of talking about being fixated like a little lemming on the things of this world. You don't really have any choice. You are just following the course of this world. What happens when you're following like a lemming the course of this world, not free, but just an automaton to the things of the world, you encounter the grace of God, and what shows up? Faith. Faith. God's grace is so foundational. God's love is so creating that God great gives us as a gift not only salvation, the promise of forgiveness, but check it out. He gives us the capacity to lay hold of the promise of salvation. What do we call that? We call that faith. Look there at verse 7, or 8, excuse me, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Check that out. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God gives us, you see that God gives us as a gift, not only forgiveness and salvation, but faith itself, which lays hold of salvation. God creates Christ-centered faith where there is only a fixation on the world. But check it out fourthly, finally. Notice that God creates, this is spectacular, God creates obedience in our lives when there's only disobedience. Take a look back at verse 2. We are described there, that expression, sobering expression, sons of disobedience. Or look, it's, Perhaps even worse in verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath. There is only disobedience to God in our souls, not obedience. We might live a kind of moral life, but we won't be fully in step with God's will for our lives. But notice what this passage says. We are created afresh and anew in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10, what it says. For we are his workmanship, the creative and creating love of God. We are his workmanship. Here's the expression, verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. 
Grace, you see, as creating love. Grace in this passage is bringing to existence in your life and my life stuff that did not exist. Faith, love for Jesus, new resurrection life and resurrection power. God creating what he delights in, not God responding to what he delights in, God creating what he delights in. Thinking about this creating love of God makes me think back 25 years ago now to when I walked into the McDonald's just a mile from my house. I was a 16-year-old junior in high school. I was fairly convinced that I had the world by the tail at that point. And I went into that McDonald's thinking that I was fully alive. In fact, (laughs) I was too alive. That was my problem. Living life to the full. And yet the reality was, I was all these things that Paul describes in this passage. Spiritually dead, led astray by wayward passions, fixated on the world, disobedient to God, really only serving myself. But I walked out of that McDonald's about an hour later, and I had met Jesus. Grace alone. Not a self-improvement plan, but the kindness and mercy and love of God to create within me something I could never create for myself. I met Jesus in the corner booth of McDonald's and everything began to change in my life. God wasn't responding to what he found in me. God, in his mercy, you see this, in his mercy created what he delights in in me. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that is your story as well. What a wonder, God's amazing grace. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, that can be your story. It can be your story. Don't have to dust yourself up and wash yourself off to present yourself in your best best kind of presentation to God, hoping that he might delight in what he finds in you. No, 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 that's not the gospel. But you come right as you are, just as you are. Trusting in Jesus and his cross, his blood, his death, his resurrection. And God will in his mercy create in you that which is delighting to him. That's the promise of the gospel that's available for you this morning. So you see this idea of sola gratia. One of these five obsessions of the Reformation One of the things that sola gratia does, grace alone, the creating love of God, one of the things it does, and this was the heartbeat of the Reformation, was it safeguards, sola gratia safeguards God as the sole author of our salvation. It's all of grace. God gets all of the credit. God gets all of the glory. And so too, sola gratia safeguards the Son, Jesus Christ as the center of our salvation so that all eyes are on Jesus, all attention is on Jesus, all affection is on Jesus. So la gratia safeguards God alone as the author of our salvation. Do you know what else it does? So la gratia, listen, safeguards you and safeguards me. From the thousand ways that we would practically 
deny God as the sole author of our salvation. Start looking to ourselves. Sola gratia, you see, is a powerful theological conviction that protects us from ourselves. In what kind of ways? In lots of ways. But let me just mention a couple. Sola gratia, grace alone safeguards you and me from something I struggle so much with, and it is this, perhaps others of you do as well, striving to prove my own worth. Anybody struggle with that? Like at work. We know we're not saved by our works, but at work we work like we're saved by our works. Or like in our relationships. We know we're like we're secure in our relationships and friendships and marriage, but, but it seems like we're always trying to prove our worth. And the reason why I say this is because it seems so hard for us to just sort of like ask for forgiveness when we mess up. So defensive. Or we even got to prove our worth to ourselves, which is a very curious thing. Isn't it? I mean, you would think that like you could get real with yourself and you'd be like, hey, come on, man, you don't need to impress me. I mean, I know all about you. I'm me, <laughs> right? How often we are self-justifying ourselves as though we've got to prove ourselves to ourselves is a very curious, sort of crazy thing. Also trying to prove our worth to God. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 11, who stands by himself praying thusly, quote, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector right over there. You see, the grace of God alone frees us from having to prove our own worth because God has already embraced us with his creating love. But it also, listen to me, it also safeguards us. I, need, I want you to hear this. Safeguards us from despairing over our own persistent sins. Did you hear that? Do you have a signature sin that you have carried with you that has bedeviled you all of your Christian experience? The kind of Hebrews 12, 1 talks about is so easily entangles. Like you're, going, you're doing great on these other areas, but man, you get near that thing and you get so tripped up and entangled in that signature sin. I suspect we all have signature sins. For some of us, it's pride. Others of us, it's envy, anger, gluttony, lust, greed, sloth, fear. Whatever your signature sin is, you find it seemingly intractable. It kind of always shows up in your life. You find that you're giving so much mental energy to fighting it, and you realize, if you're honest, that it is the source of so much guilt and shame when it gets the upper hand in your life, as it so often does. It can be so discouraging. It can be so deflating. No doubt many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're tempted to despair over our own persistent sins, and then we're tempted to try harder 
to think that God will surely reward my good efforts if I just strive a little harder, if I just manhandle and manage this sin a little bit better. Sola gratia, brothers and sisters. Listen, it sets out a different path of healing. Looking to God's creating love to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To not look to yourself, but listen, to trust in God's power, to rest in God's presence, and listen, to let God meet you even in the reality of failure with your persistent sin. To let God meet you. Right there, to not kind of pretend and downplay, but to let him meet you right there in the persistent signature sin and extend his creating love to you. We call that grace, grace. Thirdly and finally, I want to just say this very briefly, sola gratia safeguards us. Some of you definitely need to hear this this morning from, check it out, giving up hope for hardened hearts. One of the more discouraging things in the Christian life is to bump up against hardened hearts in loved ones and family members and colleagues and classmates in our own lives, in the life of our children. What a soul-searching goes on in the hardened heart of a child with a parent, the soul-searching with a, with a child with a hardened heart. What a burden. But we have, y'all, Hope because of the grace of God. God's grace creates. It brings life when there is no life. It brings softening when there is only steel hardness. It brings joy in the gospel when there's only disillusionment. And so if you are tempted to give up, listen, on the hardened heart in your life, Remember this great truth of the Reformation, sola gratia, the grace of God alone, that God's creating love can do amazing, amazing, surprising and unexpected things, sola gratia. On Thursday of this past week, I was in conversation with a good buddy of mine who pastors a large church on the West Coast, right in the downtown of a very big city on the West Coast, and he was describing a person who came to his church just this past Sunday, a week ago, and the young man was an unlikely case to darken the door of his church. He admitted that very, very clearly. He had conversation with this young man. This young man was gay. This young man was, by his own confession, addicted to drugs and sex, involved with many partners over the years. This young man was also, by his own confession, an atheist. He was an avowed denier of God. That wasn't enough. This young man was also a Muslim by at least ethnic background, Egyptian-born and raised, an unlikely case to be in this evangelical church. But an even more unlikely thing happened last Sunday, my friend tells me, that this guy meets Jesus in the church service last week. 
And the funniest thing, the coolest thing, the goddest thing of all was that my friend, who's the lead pastor, the preaching pastor, he said, he said and he said, you'll preach. I said, I wasn't even preaching. We had one of our interns preach, he said. First sermon ever, and he said, wasn't even a very good sermon. <laughs> I can tell you what it was, though. But God, that's a fact. Sola gratia, that's what it was. God's creating love, which isn't just a slogan. It isn't just a banner. It isn't just about salvation, y'all. Sola gratia is about all of life, not just a Christian doctrine. It is a Christian worldview. It is a whole outlook on life, grace alone, a whole outlook in which we receive God's amazing creative love, And God magnifies his amazing, amazing grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your amazing grace to us in Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, thank you for the fantastic display of grace and mercy and the shedding of your blood and the sacrificing of your life. Thank you for how your grace often catches us off guard by surprise, but not to startle or shame, but to create joy and life and peace. Father, I pray for creating love to touch each of our hearts this morning. I pray that we would be changed by your grace, indeed by your very presence, the love of God in action in our hearts and lives and in this service, that we would leave this place in just a few minutes, different people, different people, for our good, our eternal joy in Jesus, and for your greater glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.